Uh, so tonight we're, we're back in our study of Genesis. And two weeks ago, we covered the seventh and final day of creation, right? The day God rested. And, 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 and the day that he gave us as a gift. But tonight, in a sense, our passage, passage is going to rewind and it's going to take us back to day six, to day six of creation. Uh, because and while in Genesis 1, we're given this succinct summary, we're given a very brief summary of the beginning of human life, right? God made man, God made woman, God made you in his image. That's what Genesis 1 says. It's very brief. It's very profound. And while we receive that summary there in Genesis 2, which is our passage tonight, uh, we receive a more detailed account of actually what happened on day 6. Uh, that is, Genesis 2 answers questions like, what did God make man out of? Uh, where did the first human beings live? Where were they located? And, and who was made first and so forth? So it answers more of those questions to fill in some gaps. But beyond giving us just some biographical information concerning the first human beings, Genesis 2 also lays the very foundation for, for God's design for men and for women, for males and for females. In other words, Genesis 2 answers a question that, that literally shapes and affects every facet of your life. Every facet. And it's this question, these two questions really. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman? Are there any unchanging core characteristic distinctives that make men men and women women? Or, as the world says, is there really no difference at all? Is there no difference in our design? Is it that our maleness and our femaleness don't tell us anything about your purpose or your calling? So like as my sons grow older and they ask me, you may have seen Theo here earlier, Papa, what does it mean to be a man? The world would say, well, to be a man is whatever you want. To be a woman is whatever you want. In fact, you don't have to be a man at all, Levi, Theo, Peter. You can be a woman. You can be a unicorn. You can be whatever you feel on the inside you are. Your body, your maleness, your femaleness doesn't tell you anything about who you are. But is that true? No. Thank you. Is that how I should raise my sons? No. Thank you. Or does God have a, a special, glorious, and wise design for both men and women? Does God actually reveal to us what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman? And I believe he does. Uh, and, and Genesis 2 in particular reveals to us what's at the heart, what's at the core of true manhood and true womanhood. And together, uh, we're going to study God's revelation on these matters in two parts, okay? The first part tonight uh, we're going to study what it means, what Genesis 2, how it answers the question, what does it mean to be a man? 
And, and then next week we'll answer, uh, we'll see how Genesis 2 answers what it means to be a woman. So that's kind of how we're going to let this unfold. So let's go ahead and read our passage, pray, and dig in. So get your passages before you. I'll read and then we'll pray. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. God, Father, um, I ask you now, Lord, you know that there is no power to change and transform us to shape and mold us apart from your spirit coming to work through your word right now. And so, Father, we just acknowledge that and we confess that we need you. We need you to grant us spiritual wisdom and discernment from above to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to receive your word. So we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So now our, our passage begins with the phrase, these are the generations of. And this same expression is repeated throughout the book of Genesis. Uh, for example, in Genesis 6, 9, these are in your cross-reference. It begins, these are the generations of Noah. In Genesis 10, 1, it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. In Genesis eleven ten, 10, it says, these are the generations of Shem. And I could go on. They just There's all these repeated expressions of these are the generations of. And so this expression, it, it serves as, as a header and, and a title uh, that introduces the history of a family. So that we could even translate this expression, these are the children or the, the family of Noah. These are the children of Noah's sons and so forth. And so this expression then teaches us that the book of Genesis is really, in some ways, a family history. It's a family history that begins with the very first human beings. In other words, the book of Genesis is, is, Genesis is telling us the story of God's relationship with humanity 
the beginning of it. And so every time this expression appears, it indicates to us that what's about to follow is a new installment in this overarching story. And what I want us to take away from this observation is that this means that the book of Genesis claims to be historical. It's not a fable. It's not fiction. It's not a fairy tale. It's claiming to be a genuine, real, uh, accurate account or record of what God has revealed to us about the beginning of the world, the origin. Now, after verse four gives us the title and, and introduces what family history is about to follow, namely the generations of the heavens and the earth, which is just another way to say the first family. Verses five and six uh, are going to describe the setting in which God creates man, the setting. In other words, so if you, all of us were here, like all arisen, were gathered with God on day six, uh, uh, before, right before God created the first human being, man, this is what we would see, verses five and six. You ready? Look there with me. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, so no bush, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, no plant, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So, so this is what we would see. If you can kind of picture it in your mind, it's day six, and while God prepared some soil and even brought forth uh, vegetation, plants, and fruit trees in some places on the earth on day three, as we can see, it must not have happened over the entire earth. Because the setting described here is something like it's like a barren, uncultivated land, right? So there's no bushes, there's no plants, there's no greenery. However, it's not without any potential. There's, there's water, there's a mist that's watering the land. Indeed, really, there's only two things keeping this land from fulfilling its potential. One, God hasn't sent rain yet. God hasn't sent the rain. And two, it says there was no man to work the ground. And, and I, this is interesting. This is the key insight because it teaches us that God created and God ordered the world in such a way that God and man work together to rule the earth. God sends the rain, man tills the ground. Hence, after describing the setting as barren, and in an uncultivated land, what does God do in verse 7? After he, we see the scene, what does he do in verse 7? Look there with me. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we're given many more details concerning the creation of man and woman in Genesis 2 as opposed to Genesis 1. And, and first we're told that God formed the man of dust from the ground. Formed. Uh, is a term that's connected to the imagery of a potter uh, working clay, shaping and molding it. So it implies, it can imply creative craftsmanship, skill, artistry, uh, the picture of an artist just shaping and molding a masterpiece. But, but here it says God didn't use clay, which is the, the normal substance used for pottery, uh, but the text says dust, dust. 
And while here it's referring to literal dust, in other places of scripture, the image of dust is used as a symbol of lowliness. Lowliness. Uh, for example, look at your cross-reference section. In Psalm 113.7, it says that he, God, raises up the poor from the dust. So you see this, this dust is representing lowliness, poverty, destitute. In Isaiah 26.19, it says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Again, dust symbolizing death. And so dust often symbolizes this lowly state, and that's the same emphasis here as well. God makes man from dust, nothing, and then he elevates him to co-rule the earth. We could say this is the first rags to riches story from dust to co-heir and ruler of the earth. And I, and I think this is important for us to remember. Men are nothing but dust. So often we get so consumed by the opinions of others human beings. So often we are get anxious and nervous and stressed and even depressed by what people think about us. And, and, and we, sometimes we even will craft our lives and, and adjust our speech and, and what we say and what we do to be liked by them. But, but this passage reminds us men are not gods. They come from dust and they return to dust. God is the one who remains forever. And so, so God formed the man out of dust. And then it says he breathed into the man's nostrils, the breath of life, the man, and the man became a living creature. Uh, I think this is really cool. So that word breathe, it appears also in Ezekiel 37 verse 9. Uh, it's on your cross-reference section. And in this passage of scripture, chapter 37 of Ezekiel, uh, God has his prophet Ezekiel standing before a valley full of dead bones. So just imagine this room. You guys are all dead. You've been dead a very long time and all your remains are right here. And, and Ezekiel, the prophet, he's standing before this, this valley and he receives this vision from God. And, and this is what it says. Verse nine. Then he, God, said to me, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe, that's the word, on these slain that they may live. And as soon as that command is given, uh, he speaks God's command. We're told that breath just enters all of these dry dead bones and the dead live again and they stand on their feet and it's an exceedingly great army. And that's the same picture we have in Genesis 2. The man has no life apart from God breathing into him. And, and that shows us that, you know, every breath we take, you know, now in our modern day and age, we just think it's oxygen. That's just our view. It's very simple. It's very concrete, you know, naturalistic. But the scriptures remind us that the very breath you're inhaling right now, every breath you take was given to you. Your, your whole body, everything you are was animated by the breath of God himself. And, and our, our breathing is a reminder of that. I'm dependent on God. I'm dependent on God. God gives me life. 
Thus far then, Genesis 2 has revealed man as one made of dust and filled with the breath of God. And now in verses 8 through 14, so a little of a chunk, the account shifts uh, the attention from the man. So, so it goes from looking at the man look, to looking at the dwelling place God created for the man. So the Garden of Eden. And this is a familiar place or like term, at least we've all heard of the Garden of Eden. Um, this is where it comes from. After breathing life into the man, it says in verses 8 and 9, look there, and the Lord God planted, so God's the one responsible, planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. So God makes man, then he plants a garden, a garden that has every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. So, so imagine this is a garden of extraordinary goodness, colors, vibrant, uh, beautiful, fruit, delicious, the best fruit you ever tasted. It's just a place of goodness and satisfaction, beauty. Uh, in fact, it's possible that the very root of the word, it, it means delight, pleasure. So the Garden of Eden represents everything man needs to enjoy himself. Everything he needs to del have delight and pleasure. And, and then we're, we're also told about two special trees. And this is going to be important as we go further in Genesis. Uh, one is called the tree of life, right? And the other is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, we don't have time to dig in to the significance of those two tr trees. That'll come later. But right now, it's just important to note that these two special trees are located in the Garden of Eden. And in verses 10 through 14, it's just like digresses. You heard it. Like they start talking about rivers. And really all that's saying is like the garden has a source of water as well, which would have been very important to, especially the people first receiving this account, um, to know that water was readily available to make everything grow. So all in all then, the Garden of Eden, which is described in verses 8 through 14, is described as a place of paradise. It's paradise. It's a place of peace and harmony and goodness, a place where you never go without. Always supplied, always satisfied. So after describing the Garden of Eden then, the text shifts back, our attention back to the man in verses 15 through 17. And, and, here, and this, is, this, is what I, this is what I'm really excited about. It's in these three verses that God reveals to you and reveals to me what's at the heart of being a man. What's at the heart of being a man and being made a man. So more specifically, these three verses reveal to us three core characteristics of true biblical manhood. And so if you're a young man and you want to fulfill God's design for your life, these verses are for you. And if you're a young lady, these verses teach you what a real man a man who seeks to fulfill God's design is supposed to be. So this is relevant for all of us. So look there with me. In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Just a simple sentence. So, so first note how it says that God, he's the one who takes the man. He took the man. And he put him in the garden. 
In other words, God, he, he takes this man and he entrusts to him an area of influence. He gives the man a place to fulfill his calling. And this is the same for you and I today. God, God has sovereignly placed each of you in gardens. Now, our gardens don't look like Eden. They look like your home. They look like your school. They look like your church. They look like your community, your sports team, your gardens are the areas God has placed you in to fulfill your responsibility as a man and a woman. But, but for a man specifically, what is that responsibility? What are you responsible for in this garden? What is the calling given to man by God? What does God want from you? It says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Now, in this context, that word work refers to, you know, simple. Like, he's literally tilling the land, <laughs> uh, caring for the plants, cultivating, making things flourish, cultivating and, and ensuring that God's garden flourishes, that it grows that things don't die as you are present working and tilling it. And this means then that from the very beginning, listen, men were created by God to be cultivators, to be workers, to be servants. So, so that wherever men are, wherever you're placed, things flourish because you're there. Things get taken care of because you're there. So, for example, if you're a young man working as a caddy, your service contributes to the golfer's success. When you're at home, your mom, dad, brothers, and sisters, they, they feel more encouraged. They feel more support. They feel more helped because you're there. When you're at school, your example in the classroom creates an environment that aids the intellectual growth of your peers and makes your job, it makes the job of your teacher easier. When you're at practice, as a man, your presence motivates your teammates to work together and listen to the coach. Your friends are better, your church is stronger, your community thrives because you're there. Because you are there to cultivate and to improve and to help. That's God's design. That's one of the core traits for men. That wherever you are as a man, wherever God places you, you make things flourish. You make things grow. You produce. You, you benefit others. You encourage. You support. You grow things. You don't destroy them. Now, is that true of you, brothers, young men in this room? Is that true of you? Are your gardens, the places God has sovereignly put you, are they growing and thriving? Are they better off because you show up? Or have you been MIA wasting your time on screens and, and lesser things? Have you went missing? And not only is being a cultivator at the heart of true manhood, but in verse 15, it also says God put man in the garden to work it right and keep it. So now we got another word, keep. And that could be translated as guard uh, uh, or protect. 
So not only did God create men to be cultivators, but he created men to be protectors. Defenders of the weak and the vulnerable. Um, so at some point over the summer, I was walking uh, uh, back from lunch. I was at work and I went to home. I live across the street and I walked back for lunch. And as I'm walking back into the parking lot of our church, there's just like seven or eight year old boy just sitting in the parking lot all by himself. And uh, so I'm like, this is kind of weird. And so I stopped and I tried to, you know, give him a really warm and friendly uh, greeting. Uh, but, you know, he's just a little bit apprehensive. Uh, he had this look on his face as I spoke that says something like, you're a strange man. Why are you talking to me? Please leave me alone. And, uh, and some of you sometimes give me that look, <laughs> especially when you're new. Um, and so what did I do, right? He gives me this look. He's like, thanks for saying hi, but no thanks. Uh, you're a stranger. So I went into the church and I grabbed some pops, not sodas, pops. And, and I went back out to try to win him over with sugar. So I was doing some really creepy guy things, like, you know, like <laughs> textbook creepy guy things, like, here's a kid, you want some sugar? Uh, so, and this, this prudent little boy, he was, he, you know, he, was, he, he respectfully declined, he's like, no, I'm good. And I, and I went back inside feeling just a little, you know, smaller. <laughs> but in fact, all summer, uh, but, but here's the thing. So here's the thing though. What that little boy, what, what he didn't know was that he was safer because I was there. Not because I'm tough and strong, that's true, but just because I, just if I, I would be willing to stand up, I'd be willing to defend him, I would be willing to do anything to help him out of danger if I seen it happen. In fact, all summer long, since he lived like right down the street, in fact, we painted the porch of his, I forgot how he's related to the person of during service of Boygan, we painted the porch of their house. All summer long, since he lived right down the street, he would, he would, he'd walk past my house and around the church. I mean, he's playing Pokemon Go the whole time. And I swear he caught them all. That kid was committed. I mean, he was cultivating. I'm telling you, like, I mean, every day. And so, all, and all the while, so I'm just keeping an eye on him, you know, just making sure this little boy is just walking everywhere. Make sure everything's on the up and up. And, and me and the boys, we even started like greeting him and yelling out the window every time we saw him. Hey, Vinny, what up? <laughs> and so eventually he started warming up to me, I think. Um, and so, so, so what I'm saying, right, this is an illustration. Just by my presence, my neighborhood was safer. A little boy was a little more secure. And, and that's God's design for men. We are to be protectors and defenders. And so young men, do people feel safer when you're around? Do people feel safer? Or like, does the outcast or the quote unquote weird kid or unpopular kid at your school, does that kid feel threatened? Does that kid feel made fun of? Does that, feel, that kid feel unaccepted or encouraged by your presence? Are you a protector and defender of the weak and vulnerable or do you act not like a man and take advantage of others and make fun of others and don't act like what God has designed you to be? We are to be protectors and defenders. Does your, does your little siblings trust you to do what's best for them? Does, 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 or are they scared that, that you're going to lose your cool at the slightest offense? Are you a protector or a predator? And you do not have 
to be some, you don't have to bench 400 pounds or be super strong or be the greatest athlete, but just do you show up? Do you show up? Finally, in verses 16 through 17, we receive the third defining trait of biblical manhood. Look there with me. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so there's one key word I really want to focus on, and it's that word commanded. Commanded. It says that the Lord God commanded the man. He exercised authority over the man. This means that the man was not the ultimate authority over his life or the garden. God was. Man was not created to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to suit his own passage, passes, uh, passions. Men were created to cultivate and protect the garden under the authority of God. And so based on Genesis 2, when my sons ask me, Papa, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a man? I'll say, sons, God made men to be cultivators, to be servants, to do all that's in their power to help others flourish, to contribute to the positive development of God's creation. And I'll, and I'll say, sons, God made you to be protectors. I, I constantly say this to Levi even now. When he hits his little brother, which happens often, and now his little brother just is like whacking him back now. And I say little brother, he's like four pounds less. It's like crazy. Levi, better watch out. But all the time when I'm disciplining him, if I discipline him for smacking his brothers, hitting his brother, I'm telling Levi, Levi, you're his protector. You're his defender. You don't beat up on your little brother. You make sure you make him laugh. You, you play with him. You help him. So I'm already instilling in my sons what it means to be a man. Like little brothers are laughing over there. Um, and, and I'll say, and, and lastly, I'll say, sons, God made you to keep his commands. You are called to and entrusted with the very great privilege to fulfill God's will on earth. The God of heavens and earth, you're called to obey and carry out his commands. You're called to cultivate. You're called to protect. And you're called to obey God. That's at the core of manhood, biblical manhood, what it means to be a man. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we fall so short. We fall short. And I'm, and I'm sorry, Father. We confess that as, as we, we, we do not always live up to what you call us to be. So, Father, I just pray now that you would, by your spirit, form uh, the character and design you have for us in our lives to make us cultivators, to make us protectors, to keep us in obedience to your commands. Lord, make us real men, men that make a difference, men of consequence, men that help others flourish and grow and don't tear people down. Show us what it means to be a real man, Father. And you already have in your son. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.